philosopher Goethe says, All truly wise thoughts have been thought already thousands of times. But to make them truly ours, we must think them over again honestly, till they take root in our personal experience. Welcome to Thinking Aloud, where it is my goal to think twice. We've all heard the story, the prodigal son. He asked for his inheritance, and his dad gave it to him, and he went off far away, and he squandered it on, quote, reckless living, or something like that. And then there was a big famine, and he was broke, and the only job he could get was feeding some pigs, and he was willing to eat the pig food, but he couldn't have it because it was for the pigs. So he decides that if I go home, at least my dad will give me some food. At least his servants eat, so I'll eat what the servants eat. And so he picked himself up, and he went home. Nobody tells you how long that journey was or all the thoughts he had along the way. We know that he kept going until he got home. That's pretty cool. And I couldn't tell you how many times I've read that story or listened to it or heard sermons on it. I've read commentaries. I've heard the stories of the overcomer. I've searched for ancient idioms and what this meant in the ancient world for that to happen. I've watched carefully put together families nod, holding little ones close, knowing that would never happen to them. I've seen the prodigal up front, telling his story, staying away from the taboo subjects, glossing over the pain, the cost. I remember that feeling of sitting in church as this unspoken thread of gratitude. At least we aren't like them, snaked through the community, this insidious, holier-than-thou feel that seemed perfectly justifiable. I've noticed that one family that had always seemed so well put together when they are shattered, at least an image, by a child or by children who broke the mold. They're just broken. And then we have black sheep in the fold, but we carefully put them in the back where they won't contaminate those who got it right. It's like entire congregation of older brothers existing without a single father on the porch, no one looking far off. So these mothers run ragged by regret, bowed by shame, sitting rigidly in pews and bleachers while whispers and looks wash over them. Sometimes that's imagined because we feel it ourselves, but sometimes it's very real. And often it's accompanied by unattended birthday parties, invitations never sent, invitations never received. It's like families with broken children just kind of fade from sight as their houses crumble right in front of everyone. Some families get hard, some get bitter, some dissolve. Some cling to each other with a ferocity that defies the odds, but then there's no room for anyone else, and 
All too often their pew would empty and never refill. The seat on the committee would stay empty until, as life moves on, someone else would step in and then they'd just be gone. As if they never existed. And the people noticed, but no one was brave enough or kind enough to seek them out again. And we clothe this rejection, this passive rejection in compassionate terms like space and boundaries or spiritual platitudes or like purity and keeping the house of the Lord a holy place. And rarely, I mean rarely, was there a story told proudly of the prodigal who returned. But if that story was told, it was only ever by the one who succeeded by the standards that made us all look good. If stories were told at all, they had to be accompanied by this hallelujah chorus of how they achieved or overcame, while their parents breathlessly sought validation from the very people who whispered and marginalized them when life was hard. I don't think there's anywhere in the story in Luke 15 where the prodigal pulled himself up by his bootstraps, fixed his life, regained everything he lost, and came back to his father's house as a fully functioning member so they could pretend it never happened and get back to their lives. And I don't think they went on the power of positive living synagogue circuit and developed a 12 steps to past prodigal positive living seminar and it wasn't tough love or strong boundaries that brought him back. At least in my father's house, there's food. His expectation was not to be welcomed as a son. Wherever that prodigal went, whatever he did, all of the world's vicious and seamy underbelly of corruption and chaos was exposed. How many prodigals never returned because that they thought that perfecting themselves was the only way they could once they get themselves together. Once they're whole, then they'll be acceptable. But this prodigal was hungry. He longed for food, and he knew the one place he could find it was home, so he came back, muddy, broken, destitute, one agonized step at a time. Maybe, just maybe, he could be his father's servant. Just maybe there could be room for him at the servant's table. But while he was far off, his father saw him and felt compassion. You don't see things far away if you aren't looking for them. And you won't have compassion for the ragged if you haven't already embraced them in your heart. The compassion existed before the reconciliation, without evidence of responsible choices. Before the prodigal could verbalize his repentance, he was held, kissed, and welcomed. Before. I've been the wandering child, defiant and rebellious, and the father waiting for me to turn, to return, was my heavenly father. See, I, I never had a reconciliation moment with my parents. I love them. I've made peace with that, but I will not own anything. That's not my place. I couldn't go home. I could only keep slogging forward. See, my room was gone. I'd been given the luggage. The plane tickets were bought. It's been years since I thought about that girl who faced homelessness and poverty without any real belief there was room at home for her. I cried out to God on carpeted floors and borrowed rooms and walked long hours up and down city streets. 
I know what it is to feel alone and hungry. And I'd like to say that I've never been prodigal in my heart toward God, but it's not been that long since my heart felt alienated from him in my present circumstances and the things I was facing and experiencing. And not all that long ago that I sat in my red chair looking at life that felt so broken. My heart, my soul, my mind, my spirit just felt crushed. It's too much. It's too hard. I don't have any pretty words. I don't have any answers. Everyone else gets their prayer answered. Where's my miracle? I'd grumble to myself. Surely if God could answer, if he wanted to, he would have by now. I mold those kinds of thoughts over and over again. Because maybe I'm not good enough for a blessing. Maybe I'll just be one step away from the people who give joyous accounts of their stories. I felt as though everything I did was failure and all the things I'd thought I could do excel at, achieve, were just left off like sunburned skin after a track beat. <clears throat> I prayed that same prayer over and over for the past six years. And yes, I know there are those who have prayed longer than that, prayed without results. Those who buried their prodigals, who never came home. I don't know how to process that and still understand my experience was valid and that the cry in my heart constantly that kept me looking down the road was, please, God, keep him, help him, save him and bring him home. Because that was my porch and I never left it. I couldn't. Everything I tried, everything I held in my hands in my life came second to that unrelenting prayer and that constant position. See, I wasn't being noble. I just refused to be anywhere else. I refused to let go. And my health suffered. My marriage has suffered. My ability to have friends has suffered. My housekeeping capacity has stayed exactly the same. That is to say, I'm a terrible housekeeper. My faith has wavered, and sometimes I'd be so angry at that pain I couldn't pray. Sometimes I was so bowed by grief I couldn't pray, and sometimes I'd just be so... uh, I couldn't pray, but I still asked, begged, hoped, pleaded, and there was only ever one response to that constant flow of desperation. Trust me. But how? I mean, I've watched my older son as he grew and engaged in life, and success and all of that carrying on his journey and I'm amazed by him he's a better adult than I am frankly I know I've thought on more than more occasions than I care to admit that he doesn't seem to need me so much he had a friend circle and a spiritual circle and this extended family he married into of wonderful people and they enveloped him and cared for him in ways that I never could And I was just thankful for all the goodness in his life. Thankful I could still be part of it. Thankful I could still have him as close as we have been. But that ache for the son who struggled, the one who was lost, the one who needed, that never went away. It was like I held my breath for six years. But when I saw him far off, everything changed. Over the past few months, I have sat in doctor's offices. I've listened to whole music way longer than I should be asked to. I've assertively advocated, and I've gotten motion sick from more emotional ups and downs than probably any other time in my life. But I wouldn't trade it for the world. 
I've done it for and with my son. I've done it shoulder to shoulder with my family, and I've done it with the tangible presence of God, filling this space with grace and wisdom and provision. We've wrestled and fought with white-knuckled intensity and passion through some lows beyond what we would have imagined, and we've barely dared to dream about finding light at the end of the tunnel, and honestly, I've cared less about the outcome than I have been thankful for the sound of a complete set of footsteps around me. I've cried from depths that changed the way I see the world. I have found levels in my capacity to feel that make anything else I've ever experienced (laughs) seem shallow and vain. And I've never appreciated the word groaning more. Not like the beluga whale noises the dog makes when he's hungry or dissatisfied with his bed, but the kind that comes from somewhere deeper than speech. Somewhere that is wordless and formless and yet somehow just really sharp and precise in its communication all at the same time. I've kept a carefully blank face while talking and hearing and engaging in stories that broke my heart. Stories I knew. Stories that I didn't. I've challenged my own prejudice and criticism of people who also struggle. And I've repented of closed-mindedness and cynicism that I've carried toward those who walked this road before me. I've refused to answer the how are you question and hold up in my house until I was quiet enough to see the ways that things were, not the ways that I wanted them to be. And I've grieved that loss of my fantasy as I've been terrified to look at the truth. I've braced myself, stood square in that place of blame without wondering if it was actually fair. I didn't look for somebody else to stand in my place. I've offered to be the punching bag for my loved ones as they raised issues, as they wrestled with what was necessary for the truth to be made known and for them to process the inconsistencies, the failures, and the faith that we had presented to them. Brian and I have fought. We've fought each other. We've fought for each other, and we've fought for our family. We've stomped the facade of what we thought we were into the ground, and honestly, we haven't spent much time looking for a phoenix. I can't tell all this story. It's not mine. I can tell you about us. Brian has willingly faced this fight and has endured this process, the blame, the challenges, with an all-encompassing, holistic kindness that reverberates throughout our family. Sure, he struggled with perceptions, the quality, the value of a life where all the pieces don't seem to fit. How do you serve God when you're so broken? Are you worthy of it? Do you have anything to speak into the lives of people around you when your whole life feels like it's falling apart? But despite that struggle, he shows up. Isaac has shown wisdom and grace and courage. His words and his insight have been pivotal. He's faced and appealed and challenged and battled the demons who've lurked at Dylan's doorstep when Dylan wasn't able to fight for himself. For me, his guidance, especially when the world was darkest, helped me keep my footing, and he and Bella have brought gentleness into this hurricane. And of course, Atlas always brings joy. 
Dylan, without even realizing, without meaning to, he has been a catalyst for radical change in all of us. He is the forefront of both our deconstruction and our rebirth. His courage and bravery and determination to face himself has been both an invitation and an inspiration for us to settle no longer for a status quo that was stale. We've been given the opportunity to do the same in our own lives. I can't, I can't begin to quantify all the ways that God has intervened on our behalf over the past few years, the way he's preserved lives in very specific ways and hearts and souls and bodies. It's been an unyielding season of unrelenting pressure, and i be honest, I feel less like a diamond and more like a dehydrated turd. And yet, as I'm sitting here, I can say I hope more and I despair less. That's encouraging. I'll take it. In our family, there will be forevermore who we were on January 26th, 2023, and who we became on January 28th, 2023. Thank God. We were already broken. We just didn't know how badly broken we were. In simple terms, Dylan's in drug and alcohol recovery. And fortunately, he's been able to make those choices and enter programs of his own volition and not at a court mandate or as a consequence of irreparable harm to himself or others. But he's been there nonetheless. And we have been faced with terminologies and clinical diagnoses and professional help programs and flowcharts and plans and insights that didn't make sense always but here we are anyway showing up we've played the what if game until we were tired of it until even i ran out of scenarios to conjure where we could have done things differently and gotten a result that didn't hurt a pain-free world doesn't exist i mean it shouldn't exist i've blamed myself And picked apart every way I've parented and failed my children, my husband, myself. There is no accusation or observation or failure you could throw at me that I haven't already said. What did I do wrong? What could I have done better, differently? Who could I have followed? What book should I have read? What method would have saved us all this? I mean, they write all kinds of books on babies and toddlers, how to feed them, how to adjust and manage sleep cycles, how to nourish those little bodies, inspire their little souls. New parents dream of bright futures and then struggle legitimately through sleepless nights and interrupted intimacy and all that joy, all that anticipation gets softened and dimmed under the grueling pace of new parenting. Stretch marks and crow's feet replace smooth skin and suntans. That zealous know-it-all is molded into gentle hands that hold the baby and comfort skinned knees. See, the experts have lots to say about developmental stages and how to love that expressive toddler, a creative student, and even a responsible emerging adult. But how do you love that prodigal when he's so far away? Even if he's in the same room. See, no amount of running will catch him. Until he turns around. As a Christian homeschool mom, I had the audacity to think I'd given my children an unshakable foundation 
through carefully curated reading lists, carefully selected environments, purposeful spirituality. I mean, gosh, what a jerk I am. I truly believe that if I raised them in the way, I was guaranteed a positive result. Guaranteed. After all, doesn't the Bible say, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it? Because my life was built on that, and there was departure. And I couldn't live in that place where I was willing to let this departure be the end of the story. But I also couldn't live in a place where I blindly held to a prearranged set of ideals and checklists of what successful parenting looks like or what my adult children should be. Maybe the issue was I hadn't trained them in how they should go. Was the fault in my approach? I mean, I believed we'd given them enough to, well, like us or at least be like us, but I was wrong. Or someone lied along the way and I believed them. I mean, I was not prepared for this. There aren't any Facebook groups or cozy coffee circles for parents who try so hard and have done all the things they believe to be the best, and yet their children abandon the faith of their home or despise the faith of their father and the values of their childhood upbringing. These children become adults that bring sledgehammers to the very foundations their parents so painstakingly built. Which isn't to say they shouldn't destroy the foundation. I don't live in a world where I believe that just because I built it, we can't tear it down. Nor am I arrogant enough to believe I should never be challenged. But when you see that whole house fall, the walls cave in to stand in the rubble of what was supposed to be your legacy. There's being humbled and there's being destroyed. Where are the parenting books for moms sitting at the ER through the night counting scars and heartbeats per minute? For tired eyes who don't see a strung out addict on a gurney, but a ghost of a little boy with long sleeves who climbed tall things and proudly declared, I pat a man. Who else would see value when his detoxing body radiates illness while you hold him tight and kiss a greasy head? Hold his hand as he fades in and out of consciousness and pray without sound while he thrashes. When your throat aches from unshed tears as your precious child rages against a world that has spun wildly out of control and when it all reverberates, when it all echoes past the Bible study books and the shofars and Bible verses all framed pretty on the wall and in the silence when the door slammed and there were no more words. It becomes physically painful to engage with young parents and their little ones in various stages of barely comprehended independence and it's hard to hear them talk about life and homeschool curriculum or complain about legos on the floor see no one gave me a checklist for this i don't know how to feel or when it's okay to cry or not cry or what to say when people ask how are you and honestly becky it feels like i haven't been joyful since reagan so how is your little honor student there's no market for pain like this for, for this particular journey. I mean, I see friends send kids off to college. They travel the world, all their little chickadees following a path that makes sense. Ministries and podcasts and book written, written with pristine families and a parade of successes. It's not only unrelatable, but it's like it points fingers <clears throat> at the places where I see we should have done better. Places we could have done something, should have done something, and not ignored the ugly parts. 
the damaged parts. We should have been better. We should have loved better. We should have died to ourselves better. Believe me, we know full well where all the misadventures are. There are people who carefully track a trajectory from A to B and follow a pattern of glory to glory. That's not us. We have had a different journey, and as hard as it is, I'm glad. We don't want a dream life. We'd prefer a real one. I don't need a perfect family. I have a great one. No matter what they look like at the moment, and we're all messy sometimes, we take turns. We take turns being strong. I don't ever want to take turns being false or fake, and I don't think I've ever witnessed anything more beautiful than the smile on my son's face when he looked up to see us at visitation. We sat in uncomfortable folding chairs across an institutional table from a clear-eyed young man with fresh haircut and clean clothes, and he smiled tentatively and talked with cautious optimism about this future that he was hoping for. He was stepping out and taking big risks, but he was moving forward. And that boys with the big eyes who fearlessly jumped in the deep end seemed to be slowly re-emerging, and oh, how we have missed him. We have most definitely not arrived yet. We are in the thick of it, but we are in the thick of it together, alive, living, together. I confess I was something of a prodigal myself as a young person, but God. And now here I am, chunky grandma podcasting. But while he was still far away, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I know that feel, and I will never be able to go back to the person who didn't know it. The intensity and longing and yearning for your child to return. The jump in your heart when his face shows up on the phone or his number on the caller ID. His voice in a voicemail that you save. I know what it feels to never stop looking for him walking toward you and that surge of emotion when he does. When you get to the place where it doesn't matter how how they return or why they return but just that they did. When it doesn't matter how clean or not clean they are or how receptive to being hugged and kissed, they will be hugged. They will be kissed. Seeing the uncertainty and unworthiness, the hesitance to ask or assume that home is still theirs, the contents of the fridge are still available. Your heart is still open. Realizing that your acceptance of them has nothing to do with whether or not they deserve it. It just is. And then seeing my own struggle with accepting how my Heavenly Father sees me. Several years ago, Dylan came home to live with us. Life was hard. He wasn't ready for recovery. He said, Mom, I don't want you to be embarrassed because I'm not like all your friends, and I'll make sure I don't do anything that would be a problem for you. I took his face in my hands and I said, don't you dare. You be who you are, whatever, however you are. You are my son and you matter more than anyone else who might come in and out of my life. Oh, I had no idea how that declaration would be tested. I've experienced the assumptions and the isolation that happens when your child struggles because Your family doesn't have all their jagged edges tucked away. Mostly I've experienced with how I struggle with myself when my jagged edges showed up. I don't honestly, I don't need external forces to judge me and find me lacking. I do that just fine on my own. But there's an awareness of public perception. I have the gift of 
a small community of people who have loved us and supported us and stood with us and prayed for us and him as we have walked this journey. The congregations I described at the beginning are there. I've been there. But thankfully, where God has put us, that is not where we are. I don't think I could have survived it if that would have been. We would have been hard and broken. We would have disappeared. We would have dissolved. I don't know that my prodigal would have come home to that kind of a church, to those kind of people. But he knows these people love him as he is. I've experienced that feeling of being that problem child exposing the family. And I've carried the weight of being the parent of a child who struggled, even if no one is outwardly saying a thing to judge me. There's a very real temptation to collapse under this weight of socially imposed shame. It's breathtaking. And that imposed shame is soul-sucking and oppressive, and I hate it. And somehow, in spite of everything that's tempted me, I will not. I've never been willing to carry shame for my family, for them, because of them. See, these incredible, extraordinary human beings were given to me years ago when I absolutely did not deserve or understand the gift of their existence. And I love them with an intensity that is unmatched in any other part of my life. No matter how silly or foolish or destructive or wild they might be, they are mine. They matter. They've made my world complete. They've inspired and encouraged and traveled and suffered and struggled and overcame. They've made me a better person and they've made me laugh. And they've filled me with joy. And if that is a problem for you, you can fight me. I could list all the ways I failed my kids, my husband, my family, my friends, just everyone. But I've never been more proud of my people than when they take the steps to face hard things. Or when they light up the room with their silly jokes. Or when they do nothing productive at all because they don't have to earn it. I'm still fierce about my love and support for them when they are arrogant or proud or lost or broken. Or when they're warm and welcoming and our home radiates laughter there's nowhere I wouldn't take my family nowhere I would be embarrassed to bring my sons no one I wouldn't be willing to engage on their behalf no reason I wouldn't defend them but I would think twice about sharing the story at church or a homeschool meeting I would hesitate to share too much on social media or at the local public bible study I wonder what the extended family will do with this story, what box that would put us in, what the whispers will be in the conservative circles we used to frequent, or that one church we went to years ago, they might hear. And I cringe when I think of those places because those are filled with prodigals who never came back, with families who stayed broken, with mothers' hearts that never healed and turned bitter and vengeful, whose fathers pounded their chests and talked about tough love and consequences as though that somehow made up for the fact they'd given given up waiting for their child to ever come home and had, as judge, jury, and executioner, sentenced them to an existence where father, mother, brother, sister, family was no longer available to them. 
There would be no triumphant speaking engagement for those families on Testimony Tuesdays. Those stores were closed. Too bad. They were outside. And when I see that, when I see that that has happened, in that sadness, that broken reality, I like to remember the only difference between the people in that scenario and what we've experienced is that We waited on the porch for the prodigal to return. And because of God's grace and kindness, he came home. Those other people either haven't had the chance to experience this taste of God's grace, or they chose not to wait on the porch. They gave up. It was too hard. We have so many challenges ahead. So many struggles, choices, arguments, crossroads. In many ways, we are such profoundly different people. It's hard to find common ground when it matters. But what we do have is love, loyalty, and compassion. Because sometimes we're on the porch, and sometimes we're the one with the bowed head, smelling of filth and garbage, dragging ourselves up the dusty road home. The point isn't that the prodigal left. It was that he came home, that the door was still open when he did. He didn't have to crawl up the stairs and beg for attention because while he was still far away, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I never want to forget this lesson of grace and compassion that I've been given the privilege of living right now before the triumphant end of the story. I don't have one. I don't need one because I can be content today and no one owes me the epilogue this tidy package that proves this transformation is real and valid. Today, for now, I will marvel at this peace, this beautiful peace that fills my heart. I have no idea what tomorrow or next week or the week after that looks like. I mean, today is good, so I'm thankful. But I can answer, I can reply to that answer of trust me that God gave me all those years, and I can say that I will trust the same one who gave me the capacity to get here will also be trustworthy enough to get me through the next storm as well. <laughs>